Today we're going to be talking about a, fam uh, a topic that is rooted very deeply in empowering family together, but we also need to understand how, um, as both men and women, the gospel comes and meets us, makes us whole, and equips us for life together. And so we um, are going to be in a collection of verses today, a collection of verses today because we're continuing in our series that we're calling bad theology, that we have called bad theology. Um, bad theology, but really simply, is taking the tension of Scripture. Typically, if you, if you read on any topic in the Bible, it's such a broad collection of teachings that you will find things that present a tension to living in between them. Bad theology resolves the tension by simply preferring one over the other. Or worse, denying one for the sake of the other. So we've talked about how um, gospel theology, the good news of Jesus, brings the presence of God, the very kingdom of God, into the world. And, and now we live life with God as the people of God in the church. And that allows us to stay in the uncomfortable place of being people who are fallible and still wrestling through brokenness and sin with our perfect Savior and the power of the Spirit leading us. Amen? But what we need is to realize that the gospel is not only a declaration of salvation with God, but a call and an invitation to be discipled into the way of God. And so if we are content with bad theology, the first thing it undermines is discipleship. There are a lot of things that we're very chill about as a people, if, if you're new here. Uh, there are a lot of different things that we don't care too much about. But one thing that we care very deeply about is following Jesus. Um, we do not believe that Jesus came into the world so that we could, he could save us when we die. And we could go to be with him in heaven and we're just kind of on our own right now. We believe that nothing less than life with God here on earth is what he saved us into what he teaches us to do together as the people of God, and that we are ushered into his very work in the world. And so hopefully this series helps us as a people get on the same page about not everything, but about some of the essential things. And so we spent several weeks talking about the gospel and how theology can start to get lopsided about our conception of the gospel. Now we've started to talk about grace, another topic that feels really squishy Feels like we talk about it so much that it's lost its meaning, right? Um, so we're in our second week on grace. We'll get into it after we read our scriptures. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? You have them in your handouts. There are a few passages that we are going to use to try and give us a robust vision of grace. One particular element of grace. I'll read these and we will pray. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Matthew 6.12 And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Mark 11.25 And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Matthew 5, 22 through 24. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before and before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Yeah, you might need to turn the page. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, right here with us, we thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you for your pursuit of us, your adoption of us as your children, that you are making us more and more into a healthy family in your presence. Jesus, we thank you for rescuing us, rescuing us from ourselves, rescuing us from the enemy, rescuing us from sin, rescuing us even in some partial ways here and now from brokenness in the world. Thank you that you are Lord, that you are the one who is over us and leading us. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with and within us who have believed. We ask you now, Holy Spirit, allow us to see the glory of Jesus in the words that you inspired. It's impossible for me to know where each one of us are at. And, and so I need you, we all collectively need you to meet us, to lead us. I pray that any distractions that may be weighing upon us would not merely be set aside, but that we would see you in, in our midst with those very things that are vying for our attention. And would you open for us a more beautiful, robust, scripture-saturated vision of grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and take your seats. So, I already mentioned that we started diving into this big, broad topic in scripture called grace. Grace. Uh, two weeks ago, during our first week talking about grace, we, we covered, you can go back and listen to it online, we covered the, the Greek word, the original word for 
The word grace that is translated simply means gift in the original language. But simply put, that gift is not mere forgiveness, as is very commonly assumed. Um, you may have heard of grace is uh, unmerited forgiveness. That is true. That is a component of grace. But when you read through the New Testament, there are other ways that authors use the word grace or this word gift that make it very difficult to understand it in that way alone. So we talked about this definition of grace, our working definition of grace as a church, taking the broad testimony of the New Testament, is to say that, the, that grace is the gift of God himself. Grace is the giving of God himself to us. So in sending Jesus Christ into the world, the Father was not simply making uh, forgiveness possible for us, but was actually coming to us relationally, pursuing us to sweep us up into the life of love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had from eternity past and still have today. That's what you and I were made by and what you and I were made for. And in the gospel, the way is opened for grace to be poured out into us as people and as communities called churches. And so grace is the gift of God himself. A little bit more specifically, grace is the powerful presence of God doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves. Grace is the powerful presence of God doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves. It's unmerited. We did nothing to earn it. But here are a few things that we've been talking about. Just because it's unmerited doesn't mean it doesn't require effort to participate with. So we're invited into life with God, but then God as a loving father wants children who are growing in maturity with him. And so the Christian life isn't easy because it's not just assumed. It actually takes participation. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is learning the life of grace. It's learning to live by the kingdom of heaven rather than the ways of the world. And so we talked a couple weeks ago about six different kinds of grace, if we could call it that. Six different effects. And this is not trying to be comprehensive, but it is trying to say here are huge buckets that we need to understand if we want to be disciples who are transformed and empowered for life with God for the sake of the world. So we talked about justifying grace. That's the, the kind of grace that makes a way for us into life with God, period. Let me, let me back up because I think it'll be, it'll be helpful to, to share this, um, this illustration, this metaphor. Um, sometimes we think that grace is, I already mentioned this, unmerited forgiveness. That it's just, you're forgiven, God is pleased with you, so carry on, give gratitude to God with your life. Um, but that's kind of it. That vision of the gospel is to assume that what God really desires is morally clean kids. But what we've covered in this series is that we're saved into life with God. What we're saved into is more like a house than moral cleanness. We're saved into the place of God's dwelling on earth. And so 
the first kind of grace, each place in the house represents a different element of grace, you have to enter through the doorway. There is only one way into the house of God's presence, and that is through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So the one way in to life with God is, is Jesus. Justifying grace. Justification is this big word that basically means to be declared innocent, for justice to have been done on your behalf, for our guilt to be taken by Jesus as a sacrifice that could appease God as a righteous judge. Okay? That is the doorway. We enter in through the doorway. But if we stop there, it's as ridiculous as thinking that like laying down in the doorway is the entire household. And so you, you might have friends over and you're, you're kind of standing in one corner of the doorway and you invite them into the other corner of the doorway and you just kind of live there. How, that, that'd be silly, right? No, you enter in. And so we talked also about transforming grace, that God doesn't just save us from our guilt, but he also desires our transformation. So, you know, some homes, you enter in, and there's kind of this mud room. You, you know what I'm talking about? I've never been in a house that's like that large and lavish, but there's like this mud room, right? It's where you can change and take off your muddy boots, and maybe there's a laundry room there. Imagine that's kind of like transforming grace. It's where you change clothes. You take off the old you. You put on the new you in Jesus. Those are what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Today we're talking about reconciling grace. Reconciling grace. So this is like the living room. It's where you reconnect with people that you haven't been with in a long time. You think about what you do in a living room. It's where you make new friends. You invite them in and show them hospitality. It's where relational connection occurs. Hopefully what you could see in the scriptures that we read is that there, there's a lot of relational maintenance that goes on in the Christian life. That reconciliation is not merely a one-time event in yours and my life, but an ongoing activity that retrains us from our lonely alienation, living lives apart from God, thinking that everything is on us, living lives of performance and masks, and in the freedom of Jesus, suddenly being opened up into deep, satisfying, whole, real, authentic relationships. So reconciling grace. We're actually going to go over a couple of different elements of grace this week. And I, in preparation, felt like this is such a significant one for us that we need to just leave it here. Because we... I, th I think I'm not alone in saying we live in a hyper-relationally broken culture. Um, we hurt each other, and then rather than reconcile, we ghost each other. We kind of like offend each other enough that we get to this threshold where we can't take anymore, and one of us bails. Or we... we defend ourselves, and can't possibly come to the place where we acknowledge wrongdoing and pursue reconciliation together. But 
2 Peter 3.18, the first verse that we read this week, the first verse that we read a few weeks ago, commands us to grow in grace. If we want to follow Jesus effectively, if we want to take for all it's worth the invitation of God's presence among us, we can't settle for the relational patterns of the world. So, as we imagine this house and we enter into the living room, life with God, life with one another, I hope that what we see brings us a lot of hope for enduring through the relational pain and difficulty that happens in the church and that we're all aware is happening in our everyday lives. Reconciling grace. Look with me at Matthew 6.12. The second verse on your sheet. Growing in grace teaches us how to mend broken relationships and it restores our relationality. This is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' fundamental prayer that he taught to his disciples. And there's something peculiar here. When he, when he teaches his disciples in verse 12, saying, pray like this, and he leads through some of the first forms of prayer, the first lines of the prayer, he gets to this. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When we pray this prayer, who are we praying it to? Yeah, we're praying it to God. Many of us became Christians and have heard a gospel, though, that excludes this kind of prayer from making any sense whatsoever. Because we were told, okay, you come to Jesus, you're forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future, and so you get to live life with God knowing that you are forgiven. Why would we ask for forgiveness then in the fundamental everyday kind of prayer? This highlights our bad theology. We flatten out the testimony of Scripture. And I think that we'll see this as we unpack it. Reconciliation is a continual process of forgiveness and repair, even with God. Now at the forefront, let me say, this does not mean that you are not justified in the eyes of God. But your justification before God, Him seeing you in the perfection of Jesus and all of your sin not being taken into account doesn't mean that everything's good with you and God. Let me prove to you how you already know this. If you follow Jesus for very long, there are days where you've just sinned really badly. You've like willfully known this is the way I should go, but I really don't want to go that way, so I'm going to go this way. And then you kind of plug your ears to the Spirit, you put on blinders to heaven, and you just go ahead and do it. Now, what happens when you try and pray after that? It's a fool's errand, unless you deal with what you did. Just as it's true between us relationally, so it is true with God, because we were made in His image. Now, the problem isn't on His end. 
He does not hold our sin against us. But what he also does not do is he doesn't pretend that us freely giving ourselves into sin is not going to destroy us, is not going to hurt other people, and he cannot allow for that process to go unmediated. And so Jesus hardwired into the most fundamental prayer of the Christian life that we would continually be giving our sin over to God and receiving his forgiveness afresh. Imagine if that kind of humility were wired into us. The kind of freedom to say, Lord, I knew I, I know I screwed this up. Lord, I know that that part of me that I loathe, but that you are transforming and that you love me, I can't believe. Thank you for your forgiveness. I'm sorry. And how that would translate into beautiful relationships together where rather than just bail on each other or hold bitterness against each other, we could actually engage in the relational turmoil of apology and forgiveness. I would be a huge fan of social media imposing rules about apology and forgiveness because it is the preeminent place where we see this not at all possible, right? And that's also true in the church. So, look with me at Mark 11.25. We'll, we'll ask, how does this kind of reconciling grace actually work? What are we to do? How are we to participate in this maturing grace that God invites us into? Mark 11.25. And whenever you stand praying... Okay, maybe you're praying the Lord's Prayer. For them, they would stand while praying because they would go to the temple. It was just kind of the posture of prayer for them. Whenever you pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, I... For the longest time in the early part of my Christian discipleship, had bad theology um, formed in me that reads this verse, interprets this teaching of Jesus through the lens of justification. What that kind of means is that we would understand Jesus' words here and say, if you continue to not forgive someone, what you prove is that over a long period of time, you never actually received the forgiveness of God at that moment of justification. But what, what Jesus is saying here is pretty stark. Whenever you stand praying, whenever you approach God, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that, so that, your Father in, who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We can't make Scripture fit into our doctrinal system. That's how we end up with bad theology. Now, again, I will reiterate. What, what 
Jesus is saying here is not, when he says, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you, is that your eternal uh, judgment is at stake. He's not saying, if there's one time where you fail to forgive someone of something, you will be cast out of God's presence for all of eternity. That's not what he's saying. What he's speaking of is the, the posture of God that allows for us to experience his presence. That's the forgiveness. It's God coming and dwelling close to us in this life. It's him saying, if you, if you continue to walk in unforgiveness towards your spouse or towards your children or towards your church, I cannot bless you with everything I want to bless you with. Because that would be to, to teach you that it's okay to continue in that pattern. Now, there's another reason that this challenges us. We're just unfurling all of this bad theology. We tend to think that God has one kind of presence. That God just is everywhere all the time. That's called God's omnipresence. His, his spirit is everywhere. You can't go to the bottom of the ocean or the highest mountain and escape the presence of God, the Psalms say. That's his omnipresence. And yet, the very same Psalms tell us to seek His presence continually. So, theologians say that God has an omnipresence. He is everywhere all the time in the same way that the air... Now, don't all you scientists, don't critique me too strongly. That air is all around us all the time, right? We're putting out of our minds true vacuums. But... God also has a particular presence, a place where he is pleased to come and make his presence experienced. That's what in the Old Testament you see the tabernacle and the temple. Those were the particularly concise, focused locations of God's presence on earth. On this side of Jesus, you and I have the presence of God dwelling in us. So this presents us with attention by the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This presents us with a particular tension. You can never be away from the particular presence of God as a Christian. You have Holy Spirit in you. And yet, you can be like suppressing pushing down that presence of the Holy Spirit rather than allowing Him to fill you and be filled with the Spirit, you can push the Holy Spirit down into your big toe and just come over here and that big toe is like in the light of God, you're a child of the light, and you're in darkness, facing away, doing everything you can to avoid God. The invitation is, well, turn around and come back into the light. That is the challenge of Christian discipleship, is learning more and more to walk in the light continually. That's why Jesus says, forgive anyone against whom you have anything, because fundamental to your discipleship and fundamental to the kingdom of God is forgiveness, is love. And if you walk antithetical to the kingdom, the Father has to discipline us. And we don't have time to talk about the love of the Father. We love the adoption of the Father. We hate the discipline of the Father. We hate that He knows better than we do. 
We hate that he has ambition for us to use us and make us fit for the purpose that he has for us. And this fundamentally gets down into that root to say, God will not give you more of his particular presence where you experience life and peace and joy with him while you continue to walk against what he calls you to, which also is where you'll find life in the first place. So reconciling grace calls us to forgive even when people don't apologize. And this is where the call of Jesus gets hard. And I'm not aloof to how much people have hurt all of us in this room. It's not ignoring the pain. But as I'm sure you have heard in many ways, holding on to that pain does nothing for our good, for the glory of God, and it certainly doesn't get anybody back. And in fact, forgiveness is the only hope for real transformation for you and for the one who hurt you. Look at the next verse. Matthew 5, 21 through 24. Jesus gives us more, specifically about this kind of reconciling grace. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is him unpacking the Old Testament teaching that was recorded through Moses, the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is saying, you heard that, but I say to you in verse 22 that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's worth noting something. This is the, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, there are many different topics. It almost feels like a, a bag of miscellaneous teachings of Jesus. And I think there's some internal coherence in, in it. But this is the first thing that Jesus teaches on topically. He gives the Beatitudes. He says, you're salt and light. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Salt without its saltiness is not, I'm not even going to try and cite it because I'll butcher it and that's not a real version of the Bible. But this is the first practical teaching that Jesus has. It's on anger. Jesus is so familiar with our humanity that he realizes that anger is one of the quickest ways that relationship and reconciliation is cut off. Jesus knew that unresolved anger destroys community. It destroys communion interpersonally. But notice something here. Jesus says, 
Don't even be angry with your brother or you will be liable to judgment. And he kind of teases out some consequences. But then, who bears responsibility for repair? Not the angry one. Notice that Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Jesus is saying, if someone is angry with you, go and make it right. He teases out the danger of anger and then says, so if someone's angry against you, go make it right. Don't even try and approach God with a sacrifice while you have wronged somebody else. The most worshipful thing that you can do, rather than a very spiritual act, presenting a sacrifice at an altar, is to go and, and obey God's teaching to love your neighbor as yourself, certainly within the family of God, to love your brothers and sisters, and to make it right, rather than cause anger in a person and not do anything about it. And so not only are we commanded to forgive and embrace this reconciling grace, but we're also called to apologize and to make right. Um, unresolved relational anger and pain will destroy our church community. No matter how great the food may be, no matter how inspiring our gatherings may be, if we hold anger and bitterness and are unwilling to go and apologize, we cannot experience the fullness of what God wants to do among us. Our world is writhing under the weight and of pain and anger with the only options presented by the world, either ignore it, maybe even deny that it happened. I'm okay, no, nothing, no, you don't need to apologize, I'm fine. Except you couldn't sleep last night and you were so angry and you played 15 different conversations in your head that never happened, but you're like, I'm gonna say this and then they're gonna say this and then look at how bad they are. I do that all the time, sometimes with some of you in my mind, because I'm angry. <laughs> Just be honest, right? But I know that that's not good. And we've had plenty of conversations <laughs> where you're angry with me or I'm angry with you. And probably need to have more conversations. The world either ignores it or seeks to crush others under the weight of our anger. But grace reconciles. God's powerful presence with us, doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves, empowers us to obey Jesus' teaching to forgive, even when we feel like we can't. Your emotion lies to you. It is not true. Emotions are wonderful indicators. They are terrible leaders. They will never preach truth to you. They might give you clues about something, but they will never present you with the whole truth. God's presence 
and his teaching of the path of life and real humanness tells us forgive, tells us apologize, reconcile, and his presence with us empowers that. The reason the world either avoids and denies or seeks to crush others is because there is an evangelist of unforgiveness in the world. Who was a murderer from the beginning? Satan. Unresolved anger, Jesus teaches, is the root system that bears the fruit of murder. Satan is watering in the world the seeds of unresolved anger to grow the fruit of alienation in the world. That's what murder is. I'm cutting you off. Go. Sometimes it's physical murder. Other times it's blocking you on social media. Now, there's sometimes where that might be appropriate. I'm not saying that that's always wrong. Sometimes it's seeking to cut off your reputation in a community so that you'll be rejected. There's social pain that we're bearing. There's family pain that we're bearing very deeply. Why is it so hard to forgive and to apologize? I I am not an expert in this. I still feel when, when the Spirit presses upon me the need to apologize and all of my, yeah, but them, stuff rises up, I still feel the, no, 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 anything but that. And when I'm hurt, I still feel the, there's nothing that they could do to make this right. We're not saying that this makes us perfect. We're saying that it empowers us to engage with what we're supposed to do, with where real life is found in reconciliation. Satan is the destroyer of relationship. When Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning in John, he was telling us something important about the power of Satan over unresolved anger. If you refuse to forgive or you refuse to apologize to someone you've wronged rather than walking in the healing, chaotic, painful, reconciling grace of God, you are actually walking in the destructive power of Satan. Even as a child of God, you can be following his footsteps. We don't want that. Of course we don't want that. That's what we're saved from. When we're hurt, it's so hard to forgive because it feels like justice for our pain won't be done. People will not feel outraged and as though we are giving permission for someone to continue in evil and sin and abuse. There's also a part of us that sometimes wants to retain the high moral ground over and above others. I will never forget the feeling I had when a family member took me to Germany when I was 12 and then in anger left me for 36 hours in a hotel room. And you would imagine, meh, terrifying. But the first thing that rose to the surface of my heart 
was, I can't wait to tell mom about this. I felt this inner sense of moral superiority over the person, and I liked it. That's one of the reasons we don't forgive, too. When we've wronged others, apologizing is hard because we feel we're giving that moral high ground to others, and they're an equally broken person, or they even contributed in the conflict. We fear their demands for justice and reconciliation might be too much. We see this conversation going on culturally right now about reconciliation and the cost of reconciliation and reparation and how to right wrongs. And you see this playing out right there. Every, here's the thing. This is why it's grace that reconciles. Every I forgive you is an act of faith in the it is finished of Jesus on the cross and a trampling on the lie of the murderous enemy of humanity. Every will you forgive me is an act of faith in the cleansing power of the death of Jesus and a renouncing of the great accuser of the saints. And as we do that, everything that we fear about them not changing and us not feeling better proves untrue. Um, when I was on staff with the church over in Hollywood, I would take the bus to and from, and I was, you see tons of great stuff on the bus over long periods of time. And so it was about a 45-minute ride, and uh, if you know from riding the bus, the bus driver will not stop unless it is an actual stop or they're in a particularly good mood. But there's actual policy about not stopping in other places, so you can't fault them if they're unwilling to stop when someone might stand up and say, hey, stop here. So a man in a very nice suit is looking down at his phone, looks up, and starts going, oh, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. He forgot to pull the, pull the wire and request the next stop. He missed his stop. The bus driver said, I'm sorry, I can't stop here. I'll, I'll let you off at the next stop. Man in a nice suit continues to berate the bus driver, curse him out in front of everyone on the bus, talk about how he's not doing his job, all of these various things. Bus driver keeps his cool, doesn't retaliate. Man walks off the bus in a rage, looking down at his phone, walking away. Bus driver opens the door again. Sir! Sir! The man turns around with a glare on his face. He says, you forgot your bike. That man, who is just berating, smothering, in view of everyone, hostility, anger, ugliness, the very person that he was doing that to loved him, and the turnaround, the look on his face that suddenly went, <gasps> being loved by someone who you've hated, who you've been hostile towards, instantly, in some cases, can transform. Man comes back, takes his bike, 
thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, like the disposition, you couldn't even believe the difference in those two dispositions. That bus driver, you could say, overlooked the offense. I don't know whether forgiveness was going on, but you could say overlooked the offense, loved someone by doing something for their sake, when most of us would look around and say, totally justified, just not say anything and drive on. When we participate with the grace of God, when we forgive others who have wronged us, when we seek apologizing and reconciling, we are doing nothing less than participating, if done in the name of Jesus, the very gospel that is shining light into the world and pronouncing a new way of living. And I can assure you, if we could become the kind of people who are known for that kind of relational beauty, our dark and hurting and lonely world will take notice. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Even then, hostility, alienation was the norm. There must be a different kind of work going on among a people who can pursue peace. So, here's the simple application. Be quick to apologize and quick to forgive. And if there's anyone you need to apologize to, you should do it this morning. It feels inconvenient. It feels awkward. It feels embarrassing. But it's the way of grace. In fact, that's what faith is, is when every other factor says, no, 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 no. And only Jesus, and only the gospel, and only the scriptures, and only by the power of the Spirit are we propelled to trust in what our eyes can't see and what the world certainly doesn't tell us. And so I would even encourage you, before you take the Lord's Supper and participate in the death of Jesus and receive forgiveness afresh from Him, that you would pursue that. And no one's going to judge you if you're not taking the Lord's Supper. So if you need to step outside and apologize to someone over the phone, or you need to grab someone in this room and take them outside and say, hey, I just need to make something known to you. I was really hurt when you did this. I want you to know that I forgive you. You can do that. If you need to pull someone out and say, hey, I need to apologize to you because X and Y and Z, you could do that. Um, someone just a couple of weeks ago in our church needed to apologize to a group of people outside of the church for lying to them and was like, I don't know if I really need to do it. I mean, they don't even necessarily know that I lied to them. Like, and so we're talking it through. Like, I said, at the end of the day, normally following Jesus, what feels a little risky in a neutral situation is normally the thing that you should try and do. It feels hard because it's reshaping your rough edges. And the person apologized and thought that some vengeance might come down on them. And the people actually responded and said, wow, I really respect your conviction for telling the truth. It's putting a notch in the meter that displays the kingdom of light 
in the midst of darkness. Even with kids as a parent, one of the elements of parenting is teaching reconciliation. Being able to teach kids when they hurt each other, hey, you need to apologize. Hey, so this is going to be our example. This is how you apologize, okay? Someone hurts another person. They walk over, say, I am sorry for whatever it was, hitting you with a stick in the face, <laughs> gossiping about you behind your back. There's one that can go anonymous really easy. Not helping you when you shared a need. Will you forgive me? This is the relational interaction. It is an exchange that produces reconciliation. Acknowledge wrong. Here's the tricky part about acknowledging wrong. Sometimes you don't think that you did something wrong, but they're hurting because of what you did. Maybe based on their preconceived notions or like truth structures that they have or assumptions about you. What's not helpful in that situation is saying, I'm not apologizing, I didn't do anything wrong. It's okay to say, I am sorry you felt that way. I did not intend for that to happen. And then if you're receiving the forgiveness, what you shouldn't say is, oh, you're apologizing for my emotion and not owning your act. This is the way that we do it in the world, right? Sometimes it's an objective act that needs to be apologized for and owned. Sometimes it's an interpretation of an act that hurt us, especially in the church, the way you looked at me. We don't need to apologize for saying, oh my gosh, I'm sorry for opening my eyes at you and having a certain thing on my face. I had a stomach ache, or it was first Tuesday fast, so I was so hungry. But we could still say, you know, I am sorry that you felt that way and that what I did communicated something to you that produced that. Will you forgive me for that? Talk about freedom. And then on the other side, as the, as the offended party, I forgive you. Eye contact, one of the most shocking things to me is little kids' capacity for feeling all this stuff. So the other day, I was helping two little kids who will not be named do this, and looking down at the ground, I, I'm sorry for doing that. Will you forgive me? No, look at each other. Looking, hurt, hurt party, looking at the ground, I forgive you, I'm not, look at each other. And as soon as that happened, tears start pouring out. It's silly, but even reconciled, honest with our pain kind of eye contact, owning our stuff, forgiving and relinquishing, relationally rewires us for wholeness. And then we go into the presence of God. Say, oh, we're humble. We've been humbled. God, thank you for your love. How little I deserve it. And you still give it. God, forgive me. The spirit wells up from your big toe, up through your heart, and you can breathe in the lightness of grace. That's reconciling grace. It empowers us for communion with each other and with God. 
And if you try and do discipleship to Jesus with each other for very long, and you start harboring all the wounds, the pain, not acknowledging the wounds that you've caused in others, division, isolation, dishonesty, masks, all take root. So can we be a people that take the courage and the invitation to pursue reconciliation together? There is grace. Jesus said it's finished. All we do is walk in the wake of that. Amen? Okay, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for reconciling grace. Uh, We lay before you many of the ways that we have been mistaught systems of doctrine that flatten out uh, the scriptures, that teach us an oversimplified way of forgiveness being a one-time exchange rather than a pattern of living whole lives together with you. Lord, thank you that we are safe in Jesus Christ. Would you empower us to live as children of light in the midst of our generation? That people would see us, that people would experience our apologizing, our owning, our forgiving, and know there is something altogether different about this Jesus. And may they want in. And if anyone here doesn't yet know you, doesn't yet bow the knee to you in your ways, King Jesus, we plead with you, Holy Spirit, give them courage, give them faith to open to you, to choose to follow you. And Lord, may you make us a people who embody this kind of reconciling grace together. May we be a deep people, a strong fabric of community in the midst of tumultuous times and a changing moment in our culture Please help us. If there's any work of the enemy among us, if there's any way that he's seeking to snatch up uh, your word, please uh, prohibit it, block it, stop it, Lord. Give us ears to hear the leading of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.